show for you today. It's all about the con game, the con men, the ever-evolving state of comic conventions, how they've changed over the years, where do you fit in, the current politics that surround so many of the big shows. Who owns these shows anyway? When you go to C2E2, when you go to New York Comic Con, when you go to um, Orlando Megacon, a big Dallas show, who is the corporate face, power, name behind that show, and 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 again, how can you get in, and 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 really pioneering and championing the architects, the comic book creators that create this stuff in the first place. Also, I weigh in on all sorts of Batman stuff, as uh, the Nolan trilogy is being reevaluated, and really should it be, um, in the face of the new, you know, this new release of yet another Batman uh, visionary uh, take by by another uh, auteur in, in the vein of what Christopher Nolan did. So we break it all down. We debate all of these things, comic conventions, comic book creators at comic book conventions, and the state of Batman on today's Raw Observations. Hey everybody, welcome to a distinctly international uh, broadcast of the Rob Observations podcast. I am Rob Liefeld. I have traveled half a world away to bring you this podcast today. Definitely at least 20 straight hours to get here, to boot up, and to give you this podcast. No, seriously, I am recording this particular episode from Dubai which is where I've been for the last few days and I'm going to continue to be for several days and I don't want to miss a beat and I don't want to miss a podcast. So I traveled with my laptop computer. I did not bring my um, specialized microphone that my son got me, my Blue Yeti that I I do all the episodes on. There's There's only been a couple episodes that I have talked straight into the computer here. So if this has a little tin sounding from my room, I apologize in advance, but I wanted to uh, keep the conversation going, even if I am half a world away. This is actually not the first time I've done an international podcast. Last year, I uh, I did a couple from Italy when I was um, uh, on vacation. I definitely did a couple from New York earlier in the year. I, I, I love doing these on the road and talking to you guys and keeping, again, the good vibes going. I'm having a great time over here. I would never have thought that I would be uh, in the Middle East, not once but twice within the last two years, right before the pandemic. I went to Riyadh in Saudi Arabia for a uh, launch show, uh, the, the Riyadh uh, Comic Con, and uh, it was an ex- just a fantastic experience just meeting, you know, people on the other side of the world from the Middle East where, where again, I just never had any idea that I would ever venture to. But now, as I've gotten older and the travel bug has definitely bit me on my rumpus, uh, I am more eager about traveling than I ever have before, and the more exotic, the better. Uh, this was a 16-hour flight, uh, then about another, uh, you know, hour getting out of the airport, two hours to the hotel, so give or take 19, 20 hours. Um, if it's door-to-door, add another two hours. So it's like it's like literally like a, a day to get here, 20, 22 hours at least um, from, from door to door, uh, getting here, and I've actually attended the show here 
in uh, Abu Dhabi for the last two days. I'm going to be heading down for my last day as I do this, but I've just met the most amazing people. I mean, truly, comic books and pop culture have united all of us. My wife, when she was younger, uh, traver, t- traveled uh, all over. She, she, she did a stint in Denmark. She did a stint, a uh, couple stints in Europe when she was a teenager. She would just take off. And, uh, you know, every summer, because uh, I, I met her when she was 15 and I was 18, and um, she was just always taking off traveling the world, and she would talk to me about globalization and how back then she was so happy that everything wasn't the same and there were so many differences. And certainly when you look at the architecture of all our build, buildings and the way that we all live our lives, it is very different, but it is amazing that I am in uh, Dubai and Abu Dhabi, and there are Chick-fil-A's, and there are Shake Shacks, and Burger Kings, and Starbucks, and all manner of Western culture is is over here, thriving, by the way. But at this show, you know, um, myself, uh, Charlie Cox from Daredevil, Michael Rooker from obviously The Walking Dead, Gardens of the Galaxy, um, Ming-Na Wen from, uh, you know, uh, Mandalorian, and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., and so many others. That I mean, this is really... Uh, a, a really fun guest list. The people are splendid. A lot of, uh, I mean, I've got people from Norway, uh, London, England, um, uh, Australia, New Zealand, people who have relocated, who live here, who work here, and they are so excited. Uh, this, this convention is actually in its 10th year, but we are the first year that they trans, transported outside of Dubai and into Abu Dhabi. But I'm just going to tell you something that uh, I really enjoy, again, meeting new faces, visiting new places, making new friends, and seeing what unites us and, and, and what bonds us all together. And, I mean, we are going to leave here several boxes short. Uh, the, 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 this convention is fantastic. The attendance is, uh, like, like, the guys who are with me are like, this is like a hall, like Hall A or Hall B at, a, at San Diego Comic-Con or one entire uh, maybe hall and a half in New York, but just as busy. Packed aisles, packed. I mean, cosplayers, they're here as anime people, they're here as comic book people, superheroes. You see Deadpool, you see Spider-Man, you see Batman, you see uh, My Hero Academia. It's such a blast seeing and sh- seeing all the love that unites us. Again, even half a world away from where I live and, and seeing the passion and um, having them bring the comic books up, get the comic books signed, uh, buy the comic books that we have brought with us. It's just it's just super fun. And uh, I love doing panels. I did, I did a panel the first night I was here. But the bottom line is uh, it's just great to see the things that bring us together. And the people here are so sweet and they're so kind and they're so, um, they're so fun and energetic. And again, uh, the, both, both in Riyadh two years ago and then now here, I'm going to tell you, the women here... In the Middle East, kick all sorts of ass. They're funny. They're they're bolder. I find they're more confident. Um, they they love to consume uh, everything around them. The action figures, the 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 anime, the the manga that they have in their bags when they come to our, our booth and grab the comic books. Um, the conversations are always um, just so fun. But it's it's really a, a, a heavy. Uh, female fan base over here overseas it's exciting it's exciting to experience I just I'm just having a great time and the the funny part is so this is really back when I get home the convention season in North America the United States is really going to start kicking off well uh I I read a really interesting uh commentary by a gentleman that is no secret to anybody who's 
been in the comic books industry, and if you haven't heard of him and I'm able to introduce you to him via this podcast today or the idea of who he is, I'm glad to do so. His name is Cliff Biggers. Catchy name, Cliff Biggers. He ran, operated, produced Comic Shop Weekly for three decades. That comic book newspaper that's in your store every single week was a product of his hard work and determination. I remember when I did an interview with Comic Shop Weekly in the early 90s to promote X-Force. Actually, I, I did I did an interview with them when I got on New Mutants. And then when we were transformed to X-Force, and then they did a huge coverage of the formation of Youngblood and uh, Image Comics. Uh, and, and, and of course, we're in the 30th anniversary of Image Comics, so it's really fun that we were able to get together and promote it back then through his... Uh, his newspaper, it's, it's, it's like a fold-out newspaper that folds out into like a bigger newspaper. It's, it's only like probably eight combined pages, but Comic Shop Weekly really thrived, again, for, for 30 years. Cliff Biggers has been around. He's had a st- comic store. He's thrown comic conventions, and he has produced one of the most dependable uh, comic shop newsletters slash newspapers uh, in the history of our business. I remember when guys... I was hiring people like Marat Michaels and Dan Frega at Extreme Studios, and they're like, oh, man, maybe I can get an interview in the comic shop weekly. And, you know, um, now not the C- not Comic Book Buyer's Guide. That's, that's also a weekly newspaper that was out. But, you know, there were so many great magazines and newspapers covering our industry for so many years. It was exciting. But guys like Dan Frega, guys like Marat, like, oh, man, I hope I get an interview in comic shop News, Comic Shop Weekly. And uh, so Comic Shop News, CSN, uh, when we did the Youngblood, we gave them a lot of exclusive artwork and stuff that nobody had seen before. And it was exciting. And, and it really drummed up that interest. And, and, and he always, Cliff had a great instinct about him, about what people wanted to see, um, what projects they wanted to hone in on. And every week people depended on that. Uh, comic Shop News, Comic Shop Weekly to, uh, to give it to us. Well, Cliff made a post this week about comic book conventions, having been a conventioneer himself, having thrown shows, he said, into the mid to late 90s, um, because there is this, uh, there's this, I don't know if you've seen, but in, in, in most of the shows you go to, I'm, I'm sure you guys know this, Reed, Pop, and Fan Expo are the two biggest uh, names on the block. They produce the most comic book shows. Read so, and maybe you don't know this. Maybe you haven't been to any of these shows. So maybe this will be news to you. Read Pop has New York Comic Con, which has become, uh, I think, numerically the amount of people that are in the you know come through the doors uh, has become the number one attended comic book show uh, in North America, out doing even San Diego Comic Con. Now, again, I've always said San Diego Comic Con you can't beat it. It's summertime. It's San Diego. It, it's it's you know. Roughly the same number. Um, I think the Hall H programming is probably an, an edge at this point, but that New York Comic Con is packed with excited fans. Excited fans. And I would even say that New York Comic Con slightly skews, I'd give the edge more towards the comic book enthusiast than even San Diego, which tends to still uh, favor more of a random off the street. Hey, I got to look and see what this is about. And man, there's there may be movie stars in there. I mean, don't get me wrong. New York Comic Con wants to get and has 
booked more and more big names over the last several years. George Clooney, um, all, all manner. Ryan Reynolds debuted Free Guy there a couple of years ago. I was sitting there and like three rows back as he and Sean Levy showed up and showed their first kind of junket, getting people excited for Free Guy before the pandemic um, delayed it by a couple of years. But both shows are monsters. Reed, X, Reed Pop owns New York. They also own C2E2. They also own uh, Emerald City Comic Con. Those are three of their big portfolio pieces. I mean, C2E2 has become a monster Midwest Chicago show. Obviously, New York is the tops. And Seattle uh, was one of, if not the biggest shows that was, you know, on the come. I mean, really on the go, you know, building a giant fan base. And uh, so Repop has a giant uh, uh, plant into, you know, pop culture. Fan Expo... I, I think the shiniest piece in their portfolio is the Orlando Megacon. The Florida market is huge. Uh, again, that gets numbers equivalent to what you would see with a, um, a, a lesser tier behind New York and San Diego, but only behind kind of those level shows. It's, a, it's on par with a WonderCon. Now, WonderCon and San Diego are both part of the you know, Comic-Con world. They're not corporately owned as yet. That could change before I even load this up because people are consuming shows all the time. But for both Fan Expo, okay, beyond Fan, uh, Fan Expo has uh, a bunch of, uh, a big Toronto show, a big Calgary show. Fan Expo has a Dallas show. Um, I think they bought the last remaining uh, Wizard shows. So look, here's the deal. These are big boys on the block. They, they, they push millions of people through their doors. Well, the convention business has become a big, giant business. You guys know because no matter what it is, maybe it's uh, a local show, a local Texas show, a local California show, you know, most of these shows are costing you at least $20 in the door. Now there's the high end, the 40, 50, 60, 80. There's the three day passes. You guys have seen all the different packages that people assemble and they try and get the best uh, guests and compete. Uh, we've had my buddy Jimmy J on. He has the amazing Hawaii con. He has amazing Vegas. These are big giant uh, shows that get big giant guests too that, that, are, that, are, that have been Again, growing um, at, at a rapid rate because they're in great markets and because the, the word is out, Comic-Cons are the place to be. And I know uh, that, that, that bookings, booking guests are at an all-time most competitive, you know, state. And, you know, to get more of the A-list guys, I would say, like, look, here, I am right now, again, in uh, the Middle East Comic-Con. And Charlie Cox is the biggest uh, character uh, actor, uh, the biggest talent on the floor. I mean, he's Daredevil. Three seasons on Netflix. The Defenders. He's a giant Marvel icon. He was in No Way Home. I mean, the promise is there. The Netflix shows have just gone to Disney+. Plus. The buzz is tremendous. He's the marquee name here at the show. And why wouldn't he be? Again, he's a marquee Marvel superstar. The photo ops for him were off the chain. Uh, and, and again, whenever you go to some of these different venues, you, can, you, you know, like Jason Momoa, 2018, he was, he was touring on the strength of all that was going on with the Aquaman that was to come, the Justice League that had just come. And Jason Momoa was, um, I went to a London show with Momoa, and he, again, packed him out every place he went. He was the absolute A-list guy. Now, we have yet to see, you know, some of the big, giant, monster superstars like a Ryan Reynolds um, come to a show where where the accessibility is the same in regards to like for a Charlie Cox or 
even at some of the uh, the, the 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 big shows that were going on that, that that were run by the Seamus brothers before the pandemic that were getting Josh Brolin that were getting Chris Hemsworth and that were getting Chris Evans I mean that's a big deal to get those guys in the door first it's not cheap they don't come cheap they are expensive to get there and they become the focus of the show now what's happened what's the biggest change that, that since I was a kid is that the actors that portray these uh you know, these, uh, the actors that portray these characters are vast now. I mean, so, so put it to, to, I'll put it to you this way. I was able to give a copy of my Daredevil Deadpool cover to Charlie Cox. I offered him two copies. He said, no way, man, let's swap. He, he signed mine and handed it to me. I had mine already signed, handing it to him. I took some photos backstage. Um, you know, ex- exchanged some sto- stories, got some good time with Charlie Cox. Obviously, Jeff Loeb, a really good friend of mine, was the producer on all these shows, so had a lot to talk about with him. But I, the B, the, 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 the bulb went off in my head when fans were coming over to my table buying the Deadpool Daredevil cover because they wanted to go get Charlie to sign it. And I'm like, wow, I haven't been thinking. I need this too, okay? And in the last year, doing the 30th anniversary covers of Deadpool has given me, I mean, Deadpool is with all these different characters. And so... Yesterday when we were shutting down, I'm like, I can take a Deadpool She-Hulk uh, uh, comic and get that signed when that actress, her name escapes me right now, appears. I mean, look, I've got a Deadpool Iron Man. Should you know Downey Jr. ever become accessible? You know, obviously I've got a, a Thor cover. I could give that to Hemsworth. I've got, you know, I've got a Captain Marvel. So I've got Brie Larson. The, the point I'm trying to make isn't about me and my covers. Is that every Marvel, you know, character is now really I mean, got representation via some giant, big, big name talent that's that's portraying them on screen. Obviously, more and more, so is DC. So we are living in an age where these are the biggest talents that you can book, and the comic book names, as exciting as we may be, are not people who live on film and and, and screen, and are not in our living rooms on big giant eighty screen, you know, plasma screens. Um, we are not on the giant IMAX screens. And to the public, that still matters. So it feels like the comic book artists are the lesser build, you know, talent nowadays. Um, there's a show that I'm, I've already mentioned, I won't focus in, but they, they had a pretty good comic book guest list that I see coming up. But then I see, wow, their media guests are powerhouses. And already, the attention is going to go towards the media guest. That's just the way the media is trained. I can tell you that before Stanley died, 100%, uh, his representation, the two that I was really close with, were very uh, open in discussing with me that people were paying more for the photographs of Stan than they were for the autographs towards the latter few years that he was appearing at shows because they wanted what they called that photo for the mantelpiece. They wanted that photo with the big Marvel creator, with the godfather of Marvel. And they said, Rob, our photo ops are off the chain. They're off the chain. We're doing more photos now than we are signatures of comic books. And that made all the sense in the world to me. One of the reasons, one of the biggest retailers in all of comics stopped going to San Diego his name is Chuck Rosansky. Mile High Comics have been advertised in Marvel and DC Comics since I was a boy, a young lad, a young child. I would see the full page Mile High Comics, the Mile High Comics collection. It was a big deal. 
and you wanted to order comics from them and and they had all sorts of different deals and visuals and sometimes they do double page spreads in the middle of a Marvel comic. Mile high comics. Whoa. Imagine how excited I was when in 1992 Chuck Rosansky, the owner of Mile High Comics, branched out and bought a giant mega store uh, and put it in Southern California, Orange County, right next to Disneyland. And it was fantastic. That first megastore was enormous. The reason the megastore moved was because they expanded the freeway. His store was in the way of the expansion of that freeway. And uh, eventually it had to move. It was never better than the original megastore. Chuck hit the bullseye with that store. I hired all manner of talent that I met at that store. Um, I mean, I mean, all manner. Matt Hawkins, who went on to become an important editor and writer at Extreme Studios, and uh, Marlo Alkiza, who became an inker. And those are just two off the top of my head when I was doing store signings at Mile High Comics. And so, you know, the funny thing is that I, I was, you know, if you remember and had been to San Diego for years, Chuck had like almost two full blocks, like like a block or a block and a half at least block and a half of against the wall, build out, and then, you know, a giant, like, huge display, comics and comics, and he brought filing cabinets and had, you know, all manner of staff on the floor to help you. My Life Comics was a giant, you know, presentation on the San Diego comic floor, and he had the same space every year. It was 10 years ago that he said, Rob, I'm not coming back. I said, where are you going? And Chuck and I have done great business. I've done store signings at all his stores over the years. He is a mastermind of comic books. He is maybe the most accomplished, famous, uh, successful comic book retailer in the history of comic books. Mile high comic books. Chuck Rosansky. Chuck said to me, Rob, I'm leaving. I said, why? He said, have you looked around? Now, this is his personal experience that he's telling me for a few years. And he's the one who's investing and bringing out all of the resources, staff, and, and, and inventory, and setup. So, so this is from his point of view. He'd say, Rob, the last couple, couple of years, people aren't buying comics here. They're not buying comics at all. People are here to take pictures for Instagram, for social media. They're here to take pictures with the Star Wars exhibit, with the Lord of the Rings exhibit, the Middle Earth stuff. They want, you know, the 300 exhibit. People are coming, and they're bringing their cameras, and it's the showing off of, look at where I'm at, look at the exclusivity that I'm on this floor, and look at all the great pictures I'm taking. He goes, man, it's all about Instagram. This is 2012, Chuck Rosansky telling me this. And I'm like, Chuck, as old as he is, was completely, much older than me, and as seasoned, was on the pulse of what was going on with the culture. And he said, it doesn't make sense for me to come and do this anymore. He goes... It's not that people aren't buying, it's that the people who are coming in have no interest in buying. Um, the, 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 pe- the people who actually want to buy can't even get in the door. And this is a long-time controversy with all the shows, okay? Because, as I've shared with you guys several times, you know, let's take my family, for exa- example. Uh, because of my sta- station in the industry, a long-time bet, and the Lifetime Achievement Award that I got, from Comic-Con like 11 or 12 years back, I think it was 2010, uh, I get a pass that can get my family in it all the time. But as a professional, I always get, was getting my, my kids in all the time. There's never been a time that I had to pay to get into San Diego since I became a professional because I'm afforded professional uh, uh, you know, privileges. And 
But if you, so, so you got my, my two sons, my daughter, and my, my wife, and they were increasingly telling me it was their favorite vacation every year, that they liked it more than Maui or Honolulu or any of the exotic, you know, getaways that we went to. They would say before the school year when we'd say, what was your favorite vacation? And they'd tell me, Comic-Con. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And they loved it. And they kept me engaged. Now, take every family like that. Now add friends and make it 10 people. And these people want to get in. And they don't necessarily want to get in to buy comics because my kids weren't buying comics. My kids were buying Pokemon. They were buying Yu-Gi-Oh! And they were buying Star Wars stuff. I know because I bought it. It was my card that was being swiped. This, these details I am intimately aware of. So I understood what, was, what Chuck was saying. And I also, you could see as social media became bigger that so many people were showing up to take their pictures with these amazing exhibits. I mean, for years upon years upon years, Lucasfilm has continued to step up, whether it's the army of 12 stormtroopers, all different stormtroopers, snow trooper, red trooper, you know, sand trooper, all the different stormtroopers up against a wall, life-size costumes, and you'd want to get your picture with them to the life-size Jabba the Hutt, Jabba's palace. I'm telling you, when Lord of the Rings was raging, and then, of course, The Hobbit came back, so now you're talking 2012, 2013, 2014. You're getting all the Middle Earth. You know, they even recreated the Shire one year. And, you know, you want to go through it. You want to go through, take pictures. And, and Chuck was right on the nose. There was a segment that was coming in, and San Diego had become more of a pop culture amusement park than it had a retail outlet. Now, what happened that I don't think even Chuck foresaw, and there are retailers now who have, have been there longer than him get, because he left, and they're seeing the pop because now first appearances of all these characters have, have gone through the roof. And the bronze and silver age guys who had been overlooked for so many years because of the giant publishers and the, the giant studios and all the lands and environments that I just described to you. Now people are clamoring for those books. First appearance of this character, that character. Again, She-Hulk and Moon Knight are now huge, big deals, you know, attainable. Uh, like I told you, I'm so excited to have those books. But Young Avengers is on the move. I mean... Everything is going up the flipping, the collectability, the auction houses are driving attention towards these high-end collectibles. And, and this is where you find these at the big shows, New York Comic Con, C2E2, you know, San Diego Comic Con. But the point being that, again, people, John Q. Public, and I would say for much of my kids' life, they were the John Q. Public. They love the movie stars, the TV stars. The, the, the people who are embodying the characters that are making these comics pop. Some of them very much out of reach of the general public. But again, here in Dubai, there was a panel. And I did a panel on Friday in the same, the auditorium that they're having everybody in. I think it seats 200 people. They had Michael Rooker. They had Ming Nguyen. They had uh, some Game of Thrones uh, talent. And uh, I think somebody from the Eternals, forgive me, the, the name escapes me. Um, Michael... Rooker and Ming were the biggest names, and uh, and they drew the most attention. And I was like, well, how are they going to fit everybody? You know, because people from my booth heard the commotion coming from the auditorium. And they're like, oh, we'll be back. We want to go there. And later on in the back in the green room, I was I was asking, how, how did you manage? Was it standing room only in there? I wasn't able to get in the, into that auditorium and see that I was, you know, at my table signing for fans who, who were there for my stuff. And, and they said, oh, no, 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 you had to, that was part of the a package that you bought that you could get into that panel. So boom, exclusivity, okay? Again, you can't all get into the same, you know, packed theater. I mean, you know, Hall H, 
100,000 people would attend if they could. It only seats 8,000 people. And so those 100,000 people who come to San Diego definitely want to try and get those 8,000 seats. And that's where Hall H and the exclusivity and the crazy, you know, enormous, um, the craziness of that all was born. So again, the talent has shifted and comic book artists, as important as I believe we are, and you know if you listen to the show, I believe we are some of the most important in terms of the ingredient, are finding it hard and hard, harder, harder, and harder to stand out. But like I said, a couple of these shows that are coming up, they have really nice comic book guest lists. But the media guests are the ones that are going to push, you know, I think 60%, maybe more of the overall attendance that goes to pay for the hall and then to pay for the expenses in bringing in some of these giant stars. Back to Cliff Biggers. He wrote something on Facebook talking about that he can't believe that there are shows that are turning away comic book talent and make them submit forms and go through a process of, of approval. Now, that's the show's prerogative. I can see both sides. The, the, the horrible position that I've always had is that I can absolutely see both sides of every argument. I am I, I, political. Otherwise, I just go, I see it. I see it. I live in the middle, and I see that guy's point. I see that guy's point. And occasionally, what determines it is maybe, you know, I see six points on one and, and five on the other. And, and so that one extra point on the side of the six is what turns me, in my opinion. But the bottom line is, when I was a kid, and yes, I was a kid when I first uh, set up, I was 15 years old. I got an artist alley table at the Creation Con at the Disneyland Hotel who can verify that I was there was a guy named Art Tiber. I've always, Art Tiber and I were one of the one two punch of the Orange County talent that was on the circuit looking to break in. Art is about three to four years, maybe more older than me. He was definitely with his more adult, he was older than college age, had. Um, his girlfriend, they all looked like they were in a band. They looked like they were in like a band in their 20s when I was in my fi 15. And Art was definitely a, a thrasher, a rocker, he will tell you. But again, if you don't, uh, Art Tiber, his name is spelled T-H-I-B-E-R-T. -E he inked Superman, X-Men, Wolverine, everything. He does black and white, uh, his own character. I published that, the first Adventures of Black and White in my Extreme Comics. Art drew Cable, the, the you know, Cable when that was launched as a solo series at Marvel. Um, he has uh, been extremely successful all throughout the comics industry. But as teenagers, as a 15-year-old, as, as I got a table and he got a table in his 20s uh, at these Disneyland hotels. And let's say like maybe Jim Shooter and John Romita Jr. or George Perez were also in attendance there. But it was all about the comic book talent. And everything else was retailers. Comic books, photos, posters, toys. And comic book people were driving it. You, there really wasn't a whole lot of comic book movies being made at the time from like 1978 to the mid 80s, it was just the Superman movies. It was the Christopher Reeve stuff and I never saw Christopher Reeve appear at any big show, San Diego or otherwise, in the 80s. But I was able to put my name in, request, and as a 15-year-old kid, they gave me my own table and I brought my own drawings of all the different X-Men, King Titans, Alpha Flight, Fantastic Four, and I had little black and white prints and they were like three for $10 and I sold a ton of them, and I did great, and it was so fun, and I would sit and look at Art, whose work was much more advanced than mine. He would break in a few years earlier than I would, but it was great to know that there was a guy in Orange County living in Huntington Beach that was making his merry march into the comics industry. He had a character called the Nocturnal Knight, which Nocturnal is night, and the night, I would joke with him, it's night-night. 
but he would he would laugh. He had the Nocturnal Knight, uh, a, a character that he was promoting and trying to get into publication. So the two of us were doing the Artist Alley circuit as teenagers, and I would continue to do it until I was about 17, 18 years old, and then I was doing all my jobs and trying to you know make rent and 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 pay the bills as I worked towards getting into the comics industry, which I did at 18 years old, which was fantastic. I was so excited. But those times being in an artist alley, you know, now now they call it, I, my different convention year buddies, they call it the pro-am, the pro-am. I said, what's that? He goes, you know, you know, amateurs, pro-amateurs. They're like not quite professionals, not quite amateurs. They're kind of live in the middle. But um, you've seen them, all manner of people. Some of the artist alleys are enormous. I know like Jimmy J shows, he goes out of his way to give as much space possible to all of the different people in the artist alleys in Vegas and Hawaii. Obviously, when you go to a Megacon or when you go to a New York Comic Con, uh, the best artist alley ever because it's kind of its own, you know, its own isolated unit is the New York Comic Con. That, that artist alley has become legendary and will go down as the most legendary artist alley of all time. C2E2 is right on its heels. San Diego has hung in there and continued to give and, and preserve that last space that they give to the artists and continue to have their comic book cred. And believe you me, they have had all manner of offers by different studios to take that space, that very coveted space. For instance, here in the Mideast, let me tell you something. I am one of maybe five or six other comic book creators here. Then there's the five or six talents that I've told you. Then there are giant displays. Marvel has a booth here. Sony has a booth promoting Mobius, Morbius the Vampire. But Kit Kat has a, has a booth, a giant Kit Kat booth that is as big as the DC booth in San Diego or WonderCon um, that is promoting Kit Kat. Um, there, there's different video games. There's Lego booths. Uh, so when you come in, you're razzle-dazzled. And, and, and again, I mean, the, the Sony Mobi Morbius booth is like the size of a studio booth that you would see at WonderCon. I remember when um, Tom Cruise's Oblivion was coming out, it would be like the equivalent of eight, you know, of... of, of four giant uh, four-table booths. So maybe 12 table spaces all together that make this giant Morbius booth, the Marvel booth. It's promoting Doctor Strange, you know, um, the, the, the new Doctor Strange movie. It's, it's, it's playing footage, the trailer. It's got a game. At the, at the Kit Kat game, you can hit um, like a boxing, uh, you know, uh, uh, you, you can hit the, 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 the bag, the boxing bag, the heavy bag, and it measures how hard you're hitting. And I don't know what that has to do with the candy, but it is an activity that they have on the floor that you can enjoy. And so little of it is devoted to actual comic books. Comic books are in the back of the room. Most, and you see this everywhere you go, a lot of pops, a lot of toys, a really, a, a really good selection of manga and anime here at this Mideast show. But again, going back to the, the, the model that I'm telling you about, that space on that floor that San Diego gives to its artist alley is hollowed ground and people want it and corporations want it because they want to build another environment, create another promotional opportunity because they see so much value. That's why what's happened in San Diego is spilled off into the streets and, you know, all the way up the different, the different blo blocks in the gaslight, you know, district. And, and you've got all your mobile units in between the hotels that are giving you, you know, environments and what, what they call interactions. And I remember when Amazon took like a city block in San Diego to promote the new Jack Ryan, you know, with Krasinski, 
and, and there was an obstacle course because my daughter and her, and her friends, they ran it. They're now, now teenagers, and they thought that was going to be cool. And I think they were freshmen. <laughs> I mean, so the environments and the promotions have all seemingly made the space lesser. And so what Cliff Biggers is bemoaning, and rightfully so, and I commented, well stated, well put, it's hard to take the position that these, these convention people don't want to uh, utilize more of the space. It's hard to take that position that they should give more tables when the big corporations are coming in and they're buying and they want the giant Kit Kat booth or the giant movie studio booth to promote the upcoming release so they can justify their job to their bosses and say, look, I promoted it here. I promoted it. I got eyeballs on this. That's really difficult. I get that. But on the flip, I understand that the more artists and the more architects of pop culture, because that's what we are, and uh, I coined that phrase. I told it to my buddy Jimmy years ago. You are giving voice to the architects of pop culture because that's who we are. Marv Wolfman, George Perez are the architects of the modern Teen Titans. You know, I am the architect of the X-Force universe. Claremont, Byrne, and all those guys are the architects of the, of the X-Men that you know and love. Obviously, Todd... Uh, is the architect of a Spider-Man era you love. Stan Lee, Kirby were architects of that era. Ditko. I mean, again, I could just keep randomly giving you names. But it all comes and spells out the same thing. The comic book guys are getting, are getting eliminated from shows and having to submit forms and uh, bring out credentials and in some instances pay for their you know, spot at the table. And I understand it's not 1984 anymore and they're not giving tables to 15 and 16 year olds, you know, pro-am guys. And maybe if you want to come in and sell all your Ren and Stimpy shit, you have to pay for it. I understand that as well. I don't have a solution. It's just an observation. That's what the show is about, Rob's observations. I would love to see the conventions give as much space as possible to the architects of pop culture because that's who we are. There is no daredevil for Charlie Cox to play without Stan Lee and Wally Wood and, uh, you know, John Romita Sr. and everybody and Gene Colan, everybody who, you know, contributed to keeping the legend alive. And, and so, so the, the great thing is that what we do should be given a voice and at, at the very least a table. And I would love to see, uh, as Cliff said, whenever anyone called him up to be at any of his shows, he made sure they had a table, maybe half a table, something that they, he could offer. And it makes, it make, look, it makes more sense that if you're the last one in and you haven't, you know, if you're asking for a table in April for a show in May when another guy put his reservation in, reservation in, in October, well, maybe you are just going to get a quarter of a table or a half table. That's understandable. But I would hope that we still make room for the comic book guys, the guys who dream this stuff up. And I hope that if you're listening and you intend on being one of these people that dream this stuff up, that you understand what I'm saying. I want you to have your place at the table. We should all have a place at the table. I'm fighting for comic book talent to still um, be well represented and to, to earn my spot at the table. I still do the work again. I put out 160 pages last year. I'm on my way to putting out another 100 pages this year. Uh, you know, I am, I am being represented. I am telling stories, keeping my foot in, you know, in the business that I love, creating work that I hope people will consume and maybe inspire and get good stories from. And I'm glad that people will give me a space. Now, obviously, I have a, my peer group and I, we achieved great things. You, you know, 
we're celebrating the 30th anniversary of a company that we started that revolutionized the comics industry. It revolutionized the paper, the coloring, the talent, the ability for talent to actively own and promote their own work. So, you know, maybe we have a special station, but that doesn't mean that the other guys below, especially the people that came before us, don't deserve um, their space. And so I would hope that the conventions um, would continue to look out for, in, unfortunately, what, what can only be viewed as the little guy. Because again, you know, I have to tell my kids who these different talents are. I want them to know and respect. I want them to get excited. I want to sit next to them at a, at a, and, and say, this Batman story is based on Frank Miller, David Mazzuccelli, Jeff Loeb, and Tim Sales' hard-earned work that they put on Bristol Board and that they, you know, managed to bring you in the form of amazing comic book epics that are now being adapted into giant $200 million budgeted films. But let's not forget the architects and give them a seat at the table. And so in that way, I am 100% behind Cliff Biggers, and it will be on the conventions to continue to um, expand and give room and give space to, to as many possible contributors who, again, like Cliff said, the more the merrier. It's the more history to draw on, the more stories to tell, you know, the more people on a panel to share their experiences. And I love doing panels. I love talking. I love the fact that you can sit and engage with me. You know, I'm also, uh, in the last several years, I've done extensive. I'm just telling you my model is to go to comic stores where you can walk in without paying a fee, without paying parking, have an interaction with me. Um, as a comic book creator. And I really, I'll be honest, and I could do a whole bit on this guy, but m like my unicorn, the guy that I'm following, the lead that I'm following is a guy named Jason David Frank. Yes, green, white ranger. Um, I got to know him years ago. We actually shared a manager in the 90s. And uh, there's, there's more to tell on that that's very interesting. But, um, you know, Jason David Frank, I see how aggressive he promotes himself, his projects, his, 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 his film that he has helped um, finance and produce, and he's aggressive, and I took his blueprint for going to stores last year, especially coming out of the pandemic, and I followed it. And in some instances, went to the very same stores because I just wanted to get out and make myself as accessible as possible, and that then removes whether a convention deems me valuable. And if you've seen me in Florida lately, it's because I went to a store because a convention wasn't interested in having me. And that's fine because I took, the, I took my future into my hands and I took my destiny meeting fans into my hands. And so there's always going to be that option and we always want to help stores out. And if you came and saw me, you got a comic book signed for free at the comic book store because I don't want you to come, you know, and not leave with something that I'm signing for you. And that's just, that's just an idea of a model that I'm approaching. But the bottom line is the more the merrier. I hope we can keep floor spaces. I hope San Diego, I've heard nothing about what's going on with them. I'm assuming they're going to continue to toe the line and hold the line and keep artist, their artist alley alive because it's so important that, that people like Norm Ratman and Todd Nock, who've been um, showing up and promoting their comics work, and all their pages and their comics and their prints for years upon years, decades now, that they have a place to go. And so uh, that, that's my weigh-in on what I call the con game. And that's, that's mostly what this episode is about, is the con game and who's playing it and, and, and who's dominating it. And again, you're not going to get around the fact that um, the soccer moms love the movie stars. They love Chris Hemsworth. They love his arms. They love Chris Evans. They, they think he's beautiful. Um, obviously, the dads like Gal Gadot and Brie Larson and 
They've both actually been to comic shows in the last five years. I mean, again, I think maybe only Downey Jr. and and Ryan Reynolds are the ones that I can think of, and maybe Christian Bale, who who have not been and, and are not going. They're 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 hardworking actors, and and the conventions are hard to for them to schedule in. Uh, but bottom line, you know, these guys have now become the marquees with good reason. We pay big dollars to go see them on IMAX trains or have them come into our home via streaming and uh and you know that's just a natural you're not going to fight that but i would hope that conventions continue to give a table to give a chair to give a panel to the architects that we are because without our passion for what we do there would literally be blank pages and and nothing to celebrate whatsoever so that's my way in on the con game and i hope that we can continue to honor and preserve uh, my fellow you know comic book creators so here we go. I am still at a hotel in Dubai and wrapping up this most excellent time with you uh, uh, with, with my traveling laptop and continuing to bring you the rest of this observations episode following up on where we left off with the cons and con man and the con game. It's time to talk about the subject that everybody's talking about, and that is Batman. And I have a few observations that I've always had on this entire Batman series, and I would like to share them with you now as we have um, seen the opening weekend of The Batman by Matt Reeves, starring Robert Pattinson. I've talked about this uh, numerous times as uh, in anticipation of it coming out, given that I love the source material. I love that Matt Reeves has openly said that he based this on Frank Miller and David Mazzuchelli's Batman Year One. There's some Jeff Loeb, Tim Sale, Long Halloween, uh, Long Halloween thrown in there. And uh, I'm going to reserve giving my opinion on the movie at this time because I did not make it through it. I was I fell asleep, so I can't really give you my impressions of it. What I saw, I, I enjoyed, but I missed large parts parts of it, large portions. Um, I'm jet lagged. <laughs> it caught up with me in that theater and that um, that that film. But nonetheless, um, look, all the Batman movies do very well. They're very, very ridiculously popular, dating back to not only the Adam West show, but obviously the Michael Keaton, Tim Burton launch. Then we entered this uh, after the, the Michael Keaton and the, then the then the Val Kilmer and the George Clooney, and then it kind of cooled off. We re-entered this phase with the brilliant Christopher Nolan and. Christian Bale. And I'm going to tell you right now, I'm an unabashed, giant Christopher Nolan fan. Not for any reason that I owe him any sort of allegiance. I just like the work that he does. I love The Prestige. I love Inception. Uh, you know, I, 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 I just, I think the guy is a, uh, is a class act uh, uh, filmmaker. And whatever he touches generally has this, the scope and the scale uh, that, that, that I couldn't even possibly imagine. Dunkirk, for instance. I mean, I just did not know that that movie would, you know, captivate me in the way that it did. And it did. And I remember at the time taking my kids uh, who were in their early teens trying to, trying to get them jazzed about, about this. And, uh, and they did. You know, they, they, they were entertained too. His, his, uh, his grand scope always, uh, you know, impresses me. He always gets great talent to work with him. Um, he truly is one of uh, Hollywood's most, uh, the culture's most accomplished directors. I was sitting around a table with uh, a group of film uh, film executives a couple of years ago, and they said, uh, Christopher Nolan's the most important filmmaker in Hollywood, period. He can do anything he wants. 
he can base it on anything. He can write it and create it and, 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 and do whatever he wants with it. And, uh, and really, it was right fresh off of Inception, which, let's be honest, was a true original mind-bender, mind-bending film. Um, ridiculously entertaining and imaginative. I, I, I love Inception, and it really was the movie that showed that Nolan had more than just Batman films to offer all of us. And, and that was the period where he was making a Batman film, then making one of his own films, then making a Batman film, then making Inception. Uh, you know, he would do kind of one for the studio, one for him. But I know he really loved Batman and had a great vision for him. And, of course, uh, that trilogy of Batman films wrapped up with uh, 2012's The Dark Knight Rises, which, you know, people tend to forget, or, or maybe it's it hasn't been lost to the sands of time, but that opening weekend was really tough because there was that shooting on the preview night in Colorado by that, that insane uh, person. I mean, he killed people. And, and I remember it affected probably people's fear of going and seeing that movie due to copycat killings. I know I took my son Luke who was 12 that summer, and he was concerned. He asked me where the exits were. Uh, it was all the buzz for the 24 hours before we went and saw it, and I was just, like, heartbroken. Like, oh, my gosh, my, my kid is asking me, where, where where will we run if a shooter, you know, emerges? So I, I know the opening weekend of that was no doubt impacted, but the opening weekend of Dark Knight Rises, if you have um, somehow forgotten, was $160 million. It was massive. It was huge. Um by any stretch of the imagination, uh, a, a giant, just huge money-making machine. And this is 10 years ago. This is 10 years ago. And you can say, well, that was following Dark Knight. And here's my thing. Here's my thing about Dark Knight. Dark Knight's a very interesting movie. When you go to, like, uh, Batman Begins, and my friends didn't, be, didn't you know, believe me the other day. They didn't believe me that when Batman Begins came out that summer of 2005, that it wasn't exactly the warm embrace that everyone expected. That's why the success of The Dark Knight uh, was was a little 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 shocking, because if you base it on you know the the the, the comps, the all important comps, like what did the other one do? Well, in two thousand five, with the excitement of an accomplished filmmaker, and he was really a guy who was you know buzzy. Uh, Ever since Memento, you know, everything that Nolan was doing was stirring and, and exciting the fan base. And then here comes Batman Begins. Well, would I would you would you believe it if I told you that Batman Begins, you know, had an an an, an all-encompassing domestic haul. And I, I again my friends are like, no, it didn't. That's crazy. The entire rollout of that film, the entire domestic United States earnings for that movie was $205 million in the summer of 2005. Not exactly kind of the new, uh, you know, storming the box office numbers that were um, about to to strike and had already struck with like Lord of the Rings movies and with uh, with with uh, the Spider-Man films that Sony was doing and some of the X-Men films. I mean, this was not keeping pace. Again, uh, uh, the the... A lot of the movies from Fox were doing commensurate numbers, and you're like, "Well, but Batman was this dynamo." Uh, International did 166 million combined that summer worldwide. Batman Begins did 371 million dollars. Look, I love the numbers. The business, whether you like it or not, is run by the numbers. You're all sharing and tweeting the success of the Batman by uh, 
Matthew Reeves and starring Robert Pattinson because it did 134 million, like six million above its 128 million estimate on Sunday. It did 134 million in its opening weekend. Everyone's sharing that. It's in, in the magazines, they roll it, you see when it hits, boom, Variety, Deadline, Hollywood Reporter, Collider, comicbook.com. Um, every site is running. The number, the number, the number, blockbuster opening, second biggest, you know, of the pandemic, biggest movie of 2022. Everybody attaches some sort of achievement to the number. Batman Begins did $205 million in the entirety of its run. And if you wonder what Batman Begins did on its opening weekend, it was $48 million. So again, you're going, wow, that's, you know, given the Harry Potter films in the early 2000s, given the Lord of the Rings films, given the Sony Spider-Man films, you know, $48 million, it was a little like, huh, are people still digging Batman? And trust me, I'm going to draw parallels to what's going on right now with this Robert Pattinson film because it's very interesting. So, so, so then you go, but, but Rob, really, uh, the, 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 the Christopher Nolan, you know, masterpiece was The Dark Knight. And, and, and The Dark Knight, you know, was bonkers crazy and look i i believe that the dark knight for two two-thirds of the movie is just brilliant it's a crime thriller it reminds me of a like a 70s noir uh, uh it's got elements of the godfather it's got elements of serpico it's very you know rogue and rebellious and and and, and the way that keith ledger portrays the joker is frightening and crazy and exciting and uh but but by the time they turn the truck over and Gordon emerges, and they've got the Joker, and then Batman, you know, interrogates the Joker. That's kind of where the movie kind of loses. I, I was like, am I seeing the greatest movie of all time right up to that point? I do not like the Two-Face stuff at all. I, and, and to this day, I think the CGI on Two-Face looks weird. It, it looked weird then. It looks weirder now. I didn't like the whole prison barges and the river and the poison and the gas. Like... None of that stuff, the, the chaos, the third act just lost me. I wasn't as into it. I wasn't into the two-face of it. I wasn't as into the Joker of it. But for two-thirds, I thought I'm watching one of the great, you know, cinematic masterpieces, cinematic masterpieces of my life. Well, as you know, The Dark Knight did $534 million domestically in 2008, another $471 million uh, international for a total of a billion uh, six million one hundred and two thousand, you know, crazy deal, crazy dollars. Hundred, I mean, one billion six million dollars. Okay, now its opening weekend, again, uh, was was like a huge bump. Remember, Batman Begins is forty eight million, and and uh, but this one opens to one hundred and fifty eight million, a hundred and fifty eight million. So so twenty four million more than the Pattinson. Matt Reeves' movie did, and and then The Dark Knight Rises, even with all of that crazy Colorado, Denver shooter, um, the Bane movie managed to open a couple million more than this, because now the, the movie had heat. But let's examine. So you go, oh, it's Heath Ledger, it's Heath Ledger, it's this transform, transformational, you know, role as the Joker. That's all true. That's there. That's absolutely there. But I'm going to tell you something, and we're going to talk about it, and I'm going to use it through the lens of a couple of comedies that have made me laugh. Over the years, over the last 20 years, there's a, both of them have a Seinfeld pedigree, Seinfeld pedigree. Uh, Dave Mandel, who was a writer-producer on Seinfeld and then on Curb Your Enthusiasm and then on Veep, is kind of the connective tissue here. Also, the fact that Julie Louise-Dreyfus and Larry David are from Seinfeld. So I'm going to wrap this all up in a big, juicy burrito. There's an episode uh, of Curb Your Enthusiasm, I forget which season, but uh, 
it may, maybe four, maybe five. Uh, starts with Larry shooting a film in New York with Martin Scorsese. It's a crime film. You know, Larry's playing the heavy, and when they, you know, say cut, Marty gives him some notes. It's literally Martin Scorsese. And then uh, Larry David wraps it up and, and films home, and he arrives, and he goes to visit his parents, and his dad is there, and his dad awkwardly, kind of in the middle and out of nowhere, tells him that while he was filming his movie with Martin Scorsese that his mother died. And, like, Larry's shocked. What do you mean? Mom died. We didn't want to bother you, the dad says. We didn't want to bother, you know, we didn't want to bother you. You know, Mom didn't want to bother you. She definitely didn't want to bother you. She took a turn for the worse. And he's like, it's my mom. Larry David's like, you should have bothered me. You should have bothered me. You should have called me. I should have, you know, so when's the funeral? Oh, we, we had it already. We had the funeral. It's such a great episode. And uh, Larry's devastated. He can't believe that his family did not tell him about his mother's death, nor was he, uh, you know, invited to and participated in his own mother's funeral. I mean, this is horrific stuff, especially. I mean, come on. We all love our moms, and we want to be there uh, when they pass. And so it's really crazy. But so Larry then goes on this, discovers Later in the episode, as you always know, Larry has a, if you watch Curb Your Enthusiasm, he's very persnickety. He has very, uh, you know, d d uh, he has hard lines that he won't cross. He's very stubborn. He's always the most difficult guy in every room. But he realizes that the things he doesn't want to do, he will no longer have to do because all he has to do is casually mention to get out of a meeting, well, I, I you know, I really can't because my mom died. My mom died. Oh, oh, Larry, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You know, he doesn't want to go out the guy, a, a couple of friends or, or friends he's not really crazy about. Oh, it's because my mom died. And then the best is when he is in uh, bed with his wife, Cheryl, and she's turning to go to sleep and really doesn't want anything to do with him sexually. He goes, oh, I was just thinking, you know, since, since my mom died. And she goes, oh, Larry, take me. And she gives herself freely to him. And Larry's like, wow. This death thing has a great payoff. It is dark comedy. It is, um, it, it has severe bite, but I believe it it, it, it sets up what's going to come later, and almost a decade later in an episode of Veep, where Julie Louise Dreyfus's character is about to experience another, uh, you know, issue with her own mother, and uh, <laughs> again, Larry David discovers that through death. Everyone treats him differently, and, and 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 again, all the slights that were done to him, not being involved to the in in the funeral, and again, it, it goes off on a different direction about his mom wasn't wasn't buried in a good area of the funeral because she had a tattoo that Larry n never knew about, and it um it, it it violated their religious beliefs, so they had to so then he has to bribe a janitor. It's a great episode; you should watch it. Moving to Veep. She is running for president, and the race is tight, and her numbers are cratering. She's falling apart. It mirrors a real-life presidential election. And while she is in Air Force One, in her capacity as vice president, trying to secure uh, the, 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 the presidency through a legitimate run that she has to have a competitor, uh, her mother falls ill. And she is informed of this fact while she is on Air Force One and her team rushingly. They can barely contain their excitement. She, Julie Louise Dreyfus, they've, they've portrayed that she has a really pissy uh, relationship with her mom. Her daughter has a really pissy relationship with her. So the Veep is sitting there and she is informed 
that her mother has taken a terrible turn for the worse and is near death back on the ground. And that the media has gotten wind of this. And she's like, oh, no. And one of her characters, I think it's Tony Hale, is like, no, this is great. Your, your, your numbers are skyrocketing. And her staff's like, oh, my gosh, you're getting the death bump. You've got the death bump. And they're like, what's the death bump? Well, you know, when death is impending, your numbers go through the roof. I mean, your popularity is soaring. People's, the sympathy of the people is with you. And then the rest of the, of the, of the episode is, can she hold on to this all-important death bump? She, she reroutes. She gets back on the ground. She goes to visit her mother, and she milks it all for publicity and great sympathy among voters, which is going to give her an edge in the election and propel her. And so... Two different stories. Again, has a Seinfeld connection with Dave Mandel, writer, producer. You got Dave, uh, Larry David, and then you got, of course, Julie Louise Dreyfus. But, but the death motivation, and then the death bump. Oh, you got the death. I mean, they're, it, the funny part of the episode is they're like trying to contain their glee that the suffering of Julie Louise Dreyfus, Julie Louise Dreyfus, who is, you know, trying to become the legitimate president of the United States. Um, they are thrilled that her mom's real-life health failing is helping her succeed in uh, getting the public's attention and, 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 and getting her better poll numbers. Okay, so what does this have to do with The Dark Knight? Oh, okay, I'm going to make it really clear to you, okay? As great as Heath Ledger's turn as the Joker is, his death was tragic That those many months before when he was found dead. And I am telling you, and, and this is why I, I know this to be true. My mother, the lovely Patricia, we call her Patty Liefeld. Patty Liefeld does not and has not prior to that ever seen a superhero movie. Not Christopher Reeve. In Superman, my dad took that to me to that and Superman 2. My mom didn't see Raiders of the Lost Ark with us. That was my dad, his buddy, his buddy's son. We all went, you know, the four of us. Um, my mom did not go to any of the Star Wars movies with me. My mom did not go to any of the Michael Keaton Batman movies. Um, my, her, my, my dad and her went to see a good drama. My dad said, I, I, I love a good drama, son. I love a good drama. I, I, you know, I'm always about the, I'm, I'm, I'm about the drama. Because when I was totally fake, like swinging my lightsaber in, 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 in the air, uh, at the, at the, when, when, when you know, we came out of Star Wars, and he also you know, cautioned me not to pray to the Force because a little Baptist minister's kid can't suddenly be changing religions and start calling on the Force because he saw the effect it had on me. Uh, I said, did you love it, Dad? Did you love it? And he goes, oh, I, I like a good drama. He didn't even call him drama. He called him drama, like drama mean. I like a good drama. But my mom, I remember calling her opening weekend of 2008 when Dark Knight is opening. And I call her to say hello. And I remember just, this staggered me. But I believe this is one of the things that drove so much of what was going on with that movie. And I said, hey, Mom, uh, how you doing? Oh, I can't talk. You know, me... Me and my other geriatric friend, me and my other friend Judy, were going to see The Dark Knight. And I said, wait, Mom, you're going to see a Batman film? I am. We've got to see Heath Ledger's last performance. Oh, he's such a sweet boy. We've got to go see his last performance. Now, I believe that was echoed all over the place. How do you explain Batman Begins doing 200 million domestic to then plus 500? 
you know, a $48 million opening to a $158 million opening. The death bump of Heath Ledger, and again, this has nothing to do with demeaning Heath Ledger's performance. He's great. He's legitimately the great greatest thing, in my opinion, about the Dark Knight. He is a force of nature. When he throws that guy's head into that pencil that he is, you know, stuck into the desk, that is a, whoa, get out of your seat moment. He is creepy, he is fantastic, but the bottom line is there was something else driving that, and it was, in fact, the death bump. The death bump of, oh my gosh, I've got to see his last film because my mom, Patty Liefeld, in her late 70s, told me that she was going to see her first superhero movie ever, ever, because Heath Ledger, last performance, he died. Oh, that Heath Ledger, she said. You know, he died, and this is his last performance. Okay, mommy, I, I, I hadn't heard that. I hadn't heard that six months ago. Um, so, so the death bump, I believe, propelled Dark Knight um, to for people to go into the theaters in numbers that they were not normally used to going to, to see a movie like that, and then loving it, discovering it, digging it, going back word of mouth. As we stand, this newly rebooted, very pedigreed movie with Robert Pattinson, who's a hell of an actor. I, I just people who um, bagged on the fact that he would be Batman, I just didn't understand. I, I followed enough of his independent work. Yeah, in Twilight, proved he had charisma and he could command a screen. Period. He's great looking. Ladies love him. He's got a ton of charisma, but his independent work is insane. And and he's 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 a very accomplished, very grounded actor. I knew he would pull it off. He was great. Matt Reeves brings a ton of pedigree with his Planet of the Apes. Um, Cloverfield, I mean, the genre people love him. He is definitely, as I said in an earlier podcast, trying to cue himself up through this Batman movie to be in that Christopher uh, Nolan kind of level of, you know, go to the next level via Batman films, via making Warner Brothers extremely happy by, 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 by positioning this movie for maximum longevity and maximum success. But the fact that it's 10 years later and it came in... Um, I mean, from the last Batman movie, solo Batman movie, Dark Knight Rises, $160 million to $134 million. I mean, you are missing $26, $26 million. That's a, that's a lot of money that is, that it, that is gone. Um, $134 to $160 plus is, uh, million is, is, is it's weird. In, in today's dollars, the, the amount of IMAXs that have been built, um, the, the higher ticket prices, AMC for this movie alone was charging very uh, 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 extra couple bucks to see Batman in their theaters. And I don't begrudge them that. I, 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 I don't understand why I paid the same for a $5 million independent film as I do for a giant mega blockbuster film, but that's just me. But again, the prices were up, but again, to, to come, it, it's almost like they're back in the Tom Holland phase of Spider-Man when the first one with Downey Jr. and with Michael Keaton, it just didn't connect in the way that they thought. It was a $300 million earner. Uh, in the United States when I think they were expecting, and their expectations play a big deal. They were expecting four or five hundred million for a, you know, spinning out of Civil War, our, our new take, brand new Spider-Man, Iron Man, heavily in the ad campaign, you know, um, really sewing him into the MCU. But then, of course, in subsequent films, it, it, it blossomed. He, be, uh, be, because Spider-Man was such a big part of Infinity War and Endgame, I think shooting him back into Homecoming, uh, I'm sorry, Far From Home was a, a big jolt, a big shot in the arm. But it, the other thing is I read, so one of the things about all the numbers I just gave you, 
You don't achieve those numbers without repeat business. People seeing it again and again and again. I saw Dark Knight three times in the theater. I saw Dark Knight Rises twice. My son saw it, I think, three times. Um, he loved Dark Knight Rises. He loved Bane. He loved Catwoman. The audience loved these films. Both of them, both Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises, cleared a billion dollars, which is a big damn number. It's very hard to do. And, uh, and, and, People saw those movies. People celebrated those movies. People talked about the movies. My, my personal favorite, Batman Begins. I love the Ducard, Reyes Azghul reveal. I love that he trained in the Himalayas with a, with a ninja, you know, uh, clan, and he didn't really know it was Reyes Azghul. That, that is a very clever original twist on the Batman um, origin that Christopher Nolan brought to it that I enjoyed maybe more than anything that had been done in the comics to date. Um, I just loved all, I, I really, really love Batman Begins. It's my favorite of, of the Nolan films for all, all sorts of reasons. I may actually like Dark Knight Rises more than Dark Knight. I know it's heresy to say, but bottom line, I love them. So did you. You saw them. You saw them repeatedly. Your friends saw them repeatedly. The repeat business was through the roof on these movies. They are hugely financially successful, which proves that eyeballs were drawn to it, pocketbooks were drawn to it, tickets were bought, um, asses filled the seats. These, these movies were so ridiculously successful, but then this week, man... Yeah, again, the Facebook, Twitter crowd. Oh, I never liked those films. The the ill, ill, um, you know, the ill-conceived portrayal of Batman by Christian Bale and, and the handling of, of Chris Nolan is something you know that I read a couple times. And after the disappointing Chris Nolan trilogy, and I'm sitting there going, what, what, what? what? Well, again, an attempt to rewrite history because I don't know. The thing you like now is the thing you want to be the best. So by doing that, you demean what came before, but you can't because the numbers don't back that up at all. Like I said, these number these movies were seen in huge amounts. The 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 the, the asses were in the seats, the gasp, the cheers. Those Nolan Batman films played big, they played long, they played broad, they were very successful because people bought tickets again and again and again. So the idea that those somehow are these disappointing films is just um, to use another old person's word, poppycock. That's poppycock, okay? I love it. I said a goal. I'm, I'm going to bring geriatric words every so often. And the geriatric word of today's podcast is, is poppycock, okay? So anyway, that's my opinion. I'm going to see the Batman in its entire brilliance when I get home. And I'm going to stay awake. And I'm not going to fall asleep because I'm so jet-lagged. But uh, movie looks good. Pattinson looks good. Zoe Kravitz looks good. I love how much it embodies the comic book material. Maybe the most comic booky of all the movies. And again, love the Batman. Love it the most. But the idea that, that, that now we are calling into question, and a lot of people are, Facebook, everybody, a, a, a colorist from the comic book community, Brian Busolato, his brother is Steve Busolato. They are amazing color um, artists, ab um, among other things, because they're both brilliant um, artist in terms of their illustration, but coloring is where they really made, made their mutual kind of impact. Brian B. Slott, I was like, is it just me or did everyone decide to post about Batman on social media this weekend? It was like like nothing ever before. It felt like it was more than, you know, um, No Way Home with Spider-Man and, and Infinity War and Endgame. It was just crazy. But anyway, so there you go on Batman. Those are my thoughts. The death bump is a real thing. Um, I, I, I've seen it in my own life. Larry's... Um, kind of saw the power of the death bump. Veep leaned into the power of the death bump. Um, I think Dark Knight will always have been a recipient of it that launched it onto a, a much huger canvas. Again, people were drawn to see it who might not have and then loved it and then saw it again and again and again. 
So there you guys, <laughs> there you go, guys. Fun. This has been a fun, uh, you know, podcast overseas. Really enjoyed uh, sharing these thoughts, laying down all these different thoughts with you. Um, the next time I will be back, not talking into my microphone or my computer, but back with my beautiful blue Yeti that I left behind. There was only so much room to pack. I also didn't want to damage it, but you guys are so good to me. And thank you for listening to the show. And thank you for spreading the word. Again, our growth is off the charts. Thank you so much for spreading all the love for the show. This is the time of the show where I read your um, reviews that you leave for us. And we need them, guys. We need you to leave reviews for the show. Thank you for the five stars. Thank you for the kind words. It helps position the platform in the best possible way. I appreciate it. And I read them at the end of every show. Today, I am reading from Smitty1969. Smitty D. It says, Macho, best episode yet. He gave us five stars. He says, I love this podcast as a professional comic artist myself, but more a collector and still avid fan. I feel like every episode of Raw Observations brings me something new. I also get the wonderful feeling of nostalgia. I'm only a few years younger than Rob and his childhood with comic reflects my own. We share very similar tastes in comics and this is a bright spot in my week. Keep it up, Rob. Again, Macho, best episode yet is the name of that review. Smitty, Smitty D, Smitty D1969, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for touching me. I love, again, the, mo- the, the, the thing that I love most about the reviews is it, it's it's exciting people about comics. They're buying more comics. They're looking into their comic uh, collections. They're filling in gaps. They're ordering stuff they don't have. So that is um, very thrilling. Thank you. Again, if you leave uh, uh, review for me. I will read it on the air. Thank you so very much. I am all over social media. I am on Twitter, full name at Robert Liefeld, R-O-B-E-R-T-L-I-E-F-E-L-D. I have a blue check. That's really me. I love talking to you guys, talking back and forth, our, 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 our discussions, our shared ideas. Um, I just, I love talking to you guys on that platform so much. On Instagram, I am at Rob Liefeld, just R-O-B-L-I-E-F-E-L-D. Again, a blue check tells you it's really me, not an imposter. Thank you for your comments, your DMs, your messaging. I read everything. Thank you for being so enthusiastic. Again, I love the sharing of the ideas and and the concepts and the memories. It is such a thrill. We have a Rob Observations with Rob Liefeld Facebook page. Go find it. It's on Facebook, Rob Observations with Rob Liefeld. Like it. Comment on it. Um, I I love to hear from you guys. Again, I will respond. Um, It is such a thrill that you guys are are, are dropping the word of mouth. Again, I I got people here in Dubai talking about the podcast to me. It's so fun. I love that you guys are enjoying this. It just it just lifts me up to bring this to you um, twice a week. Again, I, at this point, twice a week is as much as I can do. I'm maxed out. Um, maybe someday I can do more than that. But at this point, twice a week is where we're going to continue to stay. And I appreciate all of the love that you give the show. I really do. You are going to take care of yourself. You're going to get the health and the rest that you need. Good health you're going to get your rest, you're going to relax, you're going to eat good food, you're going to read a book, you're going to see a fun movie, you're going to have great times with your loved ones, your family, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, whatever. Enjoy yourself, enjoy life, and make sure that you circle back because I intend to see you here again, and then we will talk real soon.